Tonight, Edward Meyer takes us down a Mississippi Delta Trail in search of the blues. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We are so happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. If you are joining us for the first time, pull up a chair, join us at the table. Yeah, I think you're going to be very entertained. Uh, If you like what you hear, why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Once you do, you will be treated every Friday to new episodes of Richard and Gary's Incredible Stories. And I can guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. That's for sure. And uh, Gary, we're truly fortunate to have Edward Meyer back with us. If you recall, he uh, back in November, he uh, brought us some uh, fascinating stories of behind the scenes with Ripley's Entertainment and Ripley's Believe It or Not. And now we're going to totally shift gears here in uh, 2023 and um, talk a little bit about the blues. That's a style of music that uh, you enjoy also, isn't it, Gary? I do. From time to time, I I have a a wide variety of music that I like to listen to, and that's definitely one of them. And Edward, of course, um, has written a book about the blues. uh, And we were talking uh, when uh, we were doing the Ripley's uh, podcast with him, we were talking about his book, Buying the Bazaar. And this book is called A Man and the Blues, A Love Story. A Man in the Blues, A Love Story. So um, Edward uh, is a good friend. He's an expert on the blues, the author of A Man of the Blues. So welcome back, Edward. Well, it's so great to be back in the new year here. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to talk about another love of mine. You know, we've covered Ripley's pretty well, but there was always a private side of me. Some people knew about and some didn't, but uh, for even longer than the 40 years I spent at Ripley's, for 50-plus years now, I've been collecting all things blues for my own collection, not for the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, this evening I might focus in strictly on uh, some of the stories you tell connected with Mississippi because I have a close connection with Mississippi. I did uh, graduate work there at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg and During that time, I worked for the local radio station, WBKH, as a disc jockey, and uh, they they had a country music format, and so, oh my gosh, uh, one of the favorite uh, artists that I play over and over again was Country Charlie Pride. (laughs) Well, I don't know a whole lot about Hattiesburg, but I'm going to guess that you might not know this. A band that recorded in the very early 30s called Roosevelt Graves, wrote and performed just a couple songs, recorded on 78th, obviously, from Hattiesburg, what is believed to be the very first rock and roll song. It has all of the ingredients that are associated, the beat, the rhythm, the bass pattern of early rock and roll out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Oh, how about that? Oh, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of folks in Hattiesburg that don't even know that. Well, they, there's a thing called the Blues Trail that runs through Mississippi, and it actually starts in Memphis, and uh, it has expanded a little bit into Florida and Louisiana, it seems to. But basically, 
it, it is a area areas of Mississippi marked by historic plaques of things that happened in these little small places related to the blues. And I've done two different pilgrimages and maybe parts of a third uh, through the state, uh, visiting as many of these blues trail markers as I can. And Hattiesburg was a, a place that I visited in 2009 and learned a little bit about early rock and roll there. But it's not a place that's, you know, heavy, heavy blues. It, it's, as you said, it's more in the country fields, uh, that part of Mississippi. But uh, I love all things Mississippi. Oh, me too. Me too. And that's where I first learned uh, all about seafood gumbo. And so uh, I'm definitely a Mississippian well, at heart. <laughs> It's where it's where my wife and I first ate grits. Oh. Uh, you know, we lived in Florida for a while and stayed away from them. Had no interest, didn't like the looks of them. Uh, but the very first time we ever had them was in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and shrimp and grits is now a family favorite. Hmm? There you go. There you go. There you go. Roll on, Mississippi. <laughs> it's kind of a sidebar here, but Mississippi's got some great restaurants, great food. Uh, oh. I didn't know it before I went there, and I, I have to say people don't realize it, but, you know, Louisiana's not too far away, so it's, uh, it, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise, but there is some great seafood in Mississippi. Yeah. In oh, fact, yeah. Hattiesburg is, I think, about 100 miles out of New Orleans, and you are are well aware yep. of the incredible eating opportunities there yep. in New Orleans. The shrimp, the shrimp comes straight up the Gulf from mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about the Mississippi Delta Trail uh, this evening, perhaps the best place to start would be to talk a little bit about uh, our favorite blues man, and then we'll get to your favorite blues man. But uh, Gary has uh, known about this musician for quite some time, did some research reports, I guess, was it in high school or college? Uh, High school. High school. And his name was Robert Johnson. Are you familiar with Robert Johnson? Robert Johnson definitely is probably the most written about bluesmen. The founder of so-called Mississippi Delta Blues. Uh, recorded only 29 songs in two years, 36 and 37. A uh, whole lot of mystery about his life. Uh, there, there are scholars out there that all they do is look for Robert Johnson information. And, um, you know, when I first started listening to blues in 1970, uh, there was one album of Robert Johnson that had come out in the early 60s. And it, it became, you know, the gospel, the Bible of Mississippi blues. And over time, people have discovered that, you know, he, he definitely was an amazing, amazing writer, singer, guitarist. But, you know, wasn't really quite as original as everybody had originally given credit for. As you dig deeper into it, you discover a guy named Charlie Patton and another guy named Sunhouse that were major influences. Uh, and, and, and others. It's Robert Johnson is more the epitome rather than the, the starting point. In 1972, uh, Columbia Records released the remaining Robert Johnson side, so all 29 became available on long-playing discs for the first time, and really created uh, both blues scholarship and the early 
blues tourism of people wanting to go to Mississippi to find out what this stuff was all about. And, you know, I, I can't, I, I could talk about Robert Johnson for hours. You can't really describe him in just a couple minutes, but a superlative guitar player seemingly haunted by personal and maybe spiritual demons that wrote some of the most moving music ever recorded in America that becomes the foundation for pop and rock and roll in later years. I mean, he is, he's the cornerstone. Oh, absolutely. And the interesting thing is he uh, died very young. He was only 27 when he died, Edward. Yeah. And then, you know, part of the, certainly a big part of my first pilgrimage to Mississippi was to, to find out about Robert Johnson. I, I wanted to go to all the places he, he spent time in and, the big, the big mystery, of course, is his. Where is he buried? Three, three different cemeteries that got Robert Johnson gravestones, and I think most people agree that the third one is is the right one. But you know, again, a whole scholarship built on trying to find where Robert Johnson lived, died, breathed, got married, had a kid, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I see here uh, in my uh, research uh, the three sites are the. Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church near Morgan City, Mississippi. And then uh, there's, in fact, Columbia Records uh, decided they would put a, a monument there. And uh, then there's uh, one in the Payne Chapel near Quito, Mississippi. And then there's one in the Little Zion Church north of Greenwood. And I think it was there that Sony Records might have put something. Uh, which which of well, those three? That, that, that's where we believe you know, most people today believe he is actually buried because they found the grave digger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as with that, that's how extensive Robert Johnson research is that somebody's interviewing grave diggers to find out who buried a guy in 1938. You know, it's mm-hmm. a long time ago. <laughs> you know? A little bit. Yeah. But Robert Johnson is definitely the keystone, and, you know, Eric Clapton specifically is done a, a album of his material uh, another singer named john hammond's done a whole album of his material it it, it never goes old there, there must be hundreds of versions of his most famous songs like walk and blues i just uh, recently bought an album by a guy named david bromberg first song on it you know brand new album 2020 and it's got walk and blues by robert johnson on it and you go well you know it'll never get tired and I probably have a dozen books on my bookshelf about Robert Johnson. I mean, he's, he's just, he, he is the cornerstone. Yes, yes. And that, uh, by the way, it was uh, the wife of the gravedigger, Rosie Eskridge, and, uh, and it was in the year 2000 that she indicated that the gravesite was under a big pecan tree in that uh, little Zion Church cemetery. Were you there at that actual pecan tree or just in the cemetery in general? No, I, 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 done my pilgrimage i put guitar picks on the grave site and uh, it is decorated with mardi gras beads and harmonicas and chains and uh it they have tourists from as far away as australia and japan go to this little church in the middle of nowhere to see that tombstone gary uh you wanted to um ask edward uh, uh about how robert may have died is that right well, I think there's a lot of controversy about how he passed. Uh, there's uh, some that say it was because of uh, 
disease, and then there's others that say he was poisoned, and I kind of lean a little bit more towards the poisoning. Edward, you have a, an opinion on that one? Well, again, uh, when I first got in, you know, started listening to blues uh, in 1969, 1970, there, there was probably a dozen theories, but I, I'm pretty sure everyone agrees to this day that it was poisoned whiskey. Uh, the, the juke joint owner's wife, uh, she's flirting with Robert, Robert's flirting with her, but uh, who's ever guilty? But the owner ends up offering Robert uh, whiskey out of the bottle uh, that had been tampered. Uh, he cannot finish the show uh, and ends up dying in Greenwood, Mississippi, about maybe a half hour away from where he last performed uh, three days later. And in that three days, uh, the poison ate through him, and he went, you know, some people say he went mad and he was crawling on the floor like a dog and the whole bit. But the, the horror, real tragedy of the whole thing is that it happened fairly far from where his family was, and they didn't know until months later. So, you know, he's mm. buried in a pop grave. Nobody even knows where he's buried. The family has no idea he's dead until, you know, weeks later. Uh, that's the mystery starts, you know? Oh, yeah. And the, the single biggest Robert Johnson mystery is supposedly he may have sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads, one of his famous songs, and there's a movie called that, yep. uh, in order to play well. And yeah. so there's a lot people out there that, you know, think it was a mysterious death that his time had come, the devil was reclaiming him. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, myths surrounding that. Uh, like When he first started, he was a mediocre guitar player and okay performer, but after he disappeared for a while, he comes back and now all of a sudden he's he's phenomenal. He's just beyond what he was in the beginning. There's a movie, there's a play, there's a graphic comic book even. You oh know, yeah, people have people have tackled Robert Johnson for years now from every angle. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, moving on from uh, Robert Johnson, uh, let's talk a little bit about your favorite blues man, uh, McKinley Morganfield. I, I don't think anybody's ever heard of McKinley Morganfield, have they, Gary? Oh, I don't think so, but they probably have heard his uh, stage name. Yeah, and so yeah, well, more commonly known as Muddy Waters. Muddy there you Waters. go. <laughs> student of Robert Johnson. So there's a direct connection. Um, Muddy Waters first recorded for the Library of Congress in 1941 uh, on Stobel's plantation, a little farm area plantation outside of Clarksdale, Mississippi. And those recordings are available and they are sensational, fantastic, whatever adjective you want. But a couple years later, Robert uh, Muddy goes to Clarksdale and takes the train north to Chicago. And he is, like Robert Johnson, the foundation of Delta Blues. Muddy is the foundation of what becomes known as Chicago Blues. Uh, Electrified the Mississippi Blues, added harmonica, piano, drums, and came up with a very exciting new form of music that was, you know, very, very much based on Mississippi, but at the same time, brand new. And Muddy's best records are 1950s, but he uh, had a fairly long career. Uh, rejuvenated in the in the mid 1970s with recordings with Johnny Winter, 
the albino guitarist out of, well, actually he was born in Leland, Mississippi, but most famous, uh, spent most of his life near Austin, Texas. But, uh, you know, Muddy's now been dead since 1983, and I, I still like to play his records almost every day. And he has two sons, Big Bill Morganfield, and uh, other son goes by the name of Mud Morganfield. His real name's Larry, and they've continued the tradition. And there's probably not a guitar player in Chicago and maybe in all of America that hasn't learned something from Muddy Waters. Oh, so true. So true. Mm -hmm. We're talking with uh, Edward Meyer this evening, and he's taking us down the Mississippi Delta Trail in search of the blues. And uh, all of this uh, material is coming from a book he wrote called A Man in the Blues, A Love Story. Edward, let's talk uh, now specifically about a couple of the unusual moments you had on the trail. And I've uh, picked out the King Biscuit Show because I'd never heard of it. What What's the King Biscuit Show? What did you find out there? Well, it's a radio show uh, syndicated now. You can probably find it on your computer. But originally, starting in 1941, from the little town of Helena, Arkansas, uh, very close to the Mississippi River, but on the other side. And a gentleman named Sonny Payne has, uh, well, now deceased, but worked there for his whole career started a live blues broadcast in 1941 with a harmonica player named Sonny Boy Williamson, number two, and a guitar player named Robert Jr. Lockwood, uh, who was a student of Robert Johnson, again, that connection. And they did this show continuous every day at 12.15 in the afternoon uh, for years and years and years. It's listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the longest running, continuous running radio show in the world. And as long as Sonny Boy was alive, he appeared live on the show. He did three or four songs, advertised where he was going to be performing next in the Delta. And it was a Mississippi, Arkansas phenomenon. You know, one of the best widest range listened radio shows because every day everybody wanted to know what Sonny Boy was up to. And the King Biscuit is the sponsor is both a cornmeal and a flour company that, you know, sold their products with a picture of Sonny Boy on the cover playing his harmonica. And so, you know, the company was totally separate, but the two become synonymous with each other. And Sonny Payne, uh, I met him in 2009, quite by accident, fluke. Uh, wonderful, wonderful DJ, great, great guy. Uh, I went to Helena, you know, specifically to see Sonny Boy Williamson's studio, where the magic had happened, whatever. It was in a tiny little uh, cafe at a, a rather late lunch. And there was only one other couple in the, in the cafe and it had wonderful blues pictures on the walls. And I started talking to the waitress and said, you know, is, is Sonny Payne still alive? Is he still around? And she sort of joked and said, that's him sitting at the other table. He was the only other customer in the store. So uh, I went over and introduced myself and he ended up giving us the whole tour of Helena, took us down to the studio and, actually wanted me to be on the show the next day, but I, I couldn't stay in town long enough, but uh, had, a, had a great afternoon with him. Oh, that's, 
that is one of those amazing moments when uh, when something really magic magic happens. Uh, and my mental Got math- nice pictures, nice pictures with them, and it, it, you know it, it was the highlight of my life. Yeah, of course it is. And I uh, regret that I didn't go on the show, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I changed the schedule for that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, and my mental math uh, tells me that if that show started in 1941, uh, we're looking at 81 years. Yeah, I you know I couldn't swear by that whether it is still on today, but it was still on in 2009. Mm-hmm. And Sonny Payne, I think, died maybe five, six years ago. So I'm not sure, you know, who's carrying it on if it's still being carried on. But yeah, it, it was over 70 years. Gary has some updated information for us. It looks like they do have a website for it, and uh, it, it has that claim of being the world's uh, longest-running uh, broadcast program, and uh, you can stream it for free from their website. Okay, so for our listeners who are interested in the King Biscuit Show, tell them where to get it, Gary. Uh, you can go to kingbiscuit.com. Wow, there you go. So uh, They actually have in Helena called the King Biscuit Blues Festival every year, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and they have that posted up there as well. So yeah. great, great Internet exploration. But I bet you, uh, Gary, uh, you're not aware of the fact that Edward, um, when he was exploring the Mississippi Delta Trail in search of the blues, came across actor Morgan Freeman. Really? Yes, he did. Fascinating. Yeah. And I think Edward's going to tell us he stayed in Morgan's apartment. Could that be? That could be. And and I'd like to add that it was the same day that I had lunch with Sonny Payne, I had dinner with Morgan Freeman. So it was pretty darn special. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. That sounds like a great day. Yeah. <laughs> more, more, and, and I also like the joke that, you know, Morgan Freeman, one of his roles was playing God. So, you know, it was seeing... A blues god and a real god is the same day. <laughs> there you go. But um, Morgan Freeman owns a, a nightclub called Ground Zero, uh, which is one of the hot spots of Mississippi blues. And it's an old cotton gin, and it has six available apartments above the nightclub, one of which is his personal apartment, uh, decorated with his furniture and couple of his pictures on the wall, etc. And I didn't know that I was booking his room when I booked the room, but I actually managed to get his room. Uh, and he joked that, you know, you may be staying there, but you're not going to sleep there. And it is right above the bandstand. So it's, it's not recommended as a place to get a good night's sleep, <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's a cool place to stay. And um, we, we checked in and, you know, uh, had every intentions to go to the nightclub that night. And, you know, in between, we're going to go find dinner. And we went to a restaurant called Nadidi, uh, which was also partially owned uh, by Morgan at the time. Uh, I believe the restaurant no longer exists, but, you know, five-star, very upscale restaurant on the main street of Clarksdale, Mississippi. And we walked in the door. And at the very first table, there was Morgan sitting there. And I asked the hostess, I said, you know, you know, that's obviously Morgan, but is he here all the time? You know, it's like, is this, well, he's when he's in town and he's, you know, he, yeah, 
can I talk to him? She says, well, don't interrupt his dinner, but I'll let him know you're interested. And when he's finished dinner, I'm sure he'll come and talk to you. And sure enough, he did. I was wearing a a T-shirt with the picture of Charlie Patton on it, uh, another great Mississippi Delta blues band. And uh, Morgan and I had a good chat about Charlie Patton. Uh, It was a special, special moment. And I must say, uh, you know, as a restaurant owner, he couldn't have been more cogenial. He ended up talking to everybody, signed autographs. He had pictures taken. Once, you know, I had broken the ice, everybody wanted a piece of him. Oh, wow. Isn't that's that's pretty cool. Though, when restaurants uh, like that go out of business. Yeah. yeah. As an actor, and he's just got a fabulous voice. I mean, he's mm-hmm. just the, the sound of God. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, he has a great voice. <laughs> There's voice. no doubt about that. <laughs> it's definitely recognizable. And, you know, Gary and I both love places like that, absolutely connected, uh, you know, with, uh, well, just unusual places like that, especially if they're old. And one of the uh, stories uh, in your book, A Man in the Blues, um, you talk about this place in Greenwood, Mississippi. It was an old 1936 hotel restaurant. And, uh, you know, that got my attention right away. I love anything from the 30s and 40s. And here, here you are in a a hotel restaurant from the 30, uh, 1936. And that is where you had not gumbo, but your first tamale. My first tamales. And, you know, the connection of tamales specifically, but Mexican food in general with Mississippi is all about migrant workers. Uh, and again, you know, I didn't really know about this until I went to Mississippi, but it's very prevalent. Every little town's got a Mexican quarter, as it turns out. And, uh, I don't know, I can't pronounce the name of the restaurant, but it's something like Gira, G-I-R-A-H-D-I, something like that. And uh, we checked into a bed and breakfast around the corner, not too far from the main street, and asked the host where was the, you know, an upscale restaurant. We wanted to be, you know, fine dining place. And he recommended it. And we could have walked to it, but we took our car because we hadn't been there before. We didn't know where we were going. And it, it's not really part of the hotel, but it's in the same building, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it was a major place for cotton brokers to do business in the 30s. And, and Greenwood still advertises as being the cotton capital of the world. Uh, I doubt it personally, but uh, who am I to argue? But this restaurant has all kinds of little private rooms for businessmen to do cotton deals and they're closed off but like where a light switch would be on the wall there's little buttons and you press the buttons to get the waiter to come to you so no one knows you're in the restaurant it's like totally segregated separated rooms are different sizes according to how many you've got your business meeting with uh, but a unique, unique experience. So, you know, sort of made me think of gangsters. You know, something shady is going on behind the curtain. Yeah, right. But we had wonderful, wonderful food. And I had been thinking about tamales since I'd learned that there was tamales to be had. And I was always a little gun shy. How do you eat tamales? And I'm still not sure I know how to do it. But I said, I'm behind the closed curtain. No one's going to see me. I'm going to eat them the way I want to eat them. And I'm going to play with them as necessary. And I've now eaten 
tamales, you know, all over Mexico, all over California, but I've never had better tamales than I've had in Mississippi. Of all places. <laughs> of all places. Greenwood, Mississippi. I also have really good ones in Greenville and Clarksdale. So there, there's tamales to be had if you're on the tamale tour. On the tamale trail. <laughs> we're on the trail of the blues with uh, Edward Meyer, and uh, we're about uh, ready to wrap up uh, this evening, Gary. But we do have to have um, one last word from Edward. He mentions in his book, which is A Man and the Blues, a love story, he mentions that his road trips, like the fabulous one we've been talking about this podcast, are over. So my question to Edward is, are you sure? Well, if I may elaborate a little bit here, um, since I wrote A Man and the Blues, I've written a monstrous 5,000-page index of the blues, uh, not published in print form, but available electronically. And I'm currently writing another blues book, which is going to be a very, very large one, uh, tentatively called My Blues Chronicle. So I'm very busy writing about the blues, but Traveling the blues, um, hope there's some more travel involved, but I've, uh, I've got to be realistic that nothing is on nothing is on the slate right now. Well, knowing you, Edward, uh, you're going to be on the trail again down the road. I have no doubt about it. You've had some incredible adventures in your life. We are really honored and privileged to have had you for your uh, stories about Ripley's as well as the... Uh, stories uh, that we presented today or this evening about the blues. Thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, and uh, hopefully I can sell some books with your help. Okay. I think that hopefully uh, our readers, uh, once again, or not our readers, <laughs> our, our listeners, listeners. Yeah, our listeners. Uh, let's, uh, let's give that title one more time, Gary. It's a Man in the Blues, A Love Story. It's by Edward Meyer, and uh, the cover is really interesting. We've got a blues guitar, acoustic guitar there uh, in front of a cemetery graveyard marker, so uh, that uh, that's hard to miss. Thanks again, Edward. And, uh, Gary, I guess that wraps us up for this evening. So until the next time, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and this was an incredible story. And thank you again. Yes. Thanks, Edward. Thank you.